Hello and welcome to EndNotes. In this series, we take you behind the cover and through the pages of books on politics, policy, and more, all written by experts at the Princeton School of Public and International Affairs. I'm Rose Huber, and today I'm joined by Doug Arnold, the William Church Osborne Professor of Public Affairs Emeritus at Princeton University. Doug has broad interests in American politics, with special interests in congressional politics, national policymaking, representation, accountability, and social security. Today, we're going to talk about his new book, Fixing Social Security, The Politics of Reform in a Polarized Age. It was published by the Princeton University Press. Welcome to the show, Doug. Well, thank you for having me. So first thing, why did you write a book on the politics of Social Security, and why is it so important right now? Well, uh, first of all, I'm, I'm mostly noted as a congressional scholar. That is, I've been studying Congress for 50 years, literally 50 years. But in the mid-1990s, Social Security became a hot issue. The Social Security actuaries had just done some calculations that suggested it had long-term financial problems. And there was a lot of action in Washington as people were coming up with creative solutions. And one of the solutions was to be pri- to privatize Social Security, to make it more like 401, 403 plans and all. And uh, in the late 1990s, I was asked to join a study panel on Social Security, sponsored by the National Academy of Social Insurance, that was going to look at privatization. And actually, the study panel had been operating for a while, full of economists and demographers. And all of a sudden, they found that, gee, the politics seemed more complicated than they thought. So they asked me to join. And uh, so I contributed to that report. It was a book published by MIT on privatizing Social Security. And it was a you know, sort of overall look at the, at, the, at the whole idea. And I also co-edited a book called Framing the Social Security Debate. And that was published in 1997, I think it was, 1998. And then I didn't do anything about Social Security for the next 25 years. And as it happens, neither did Congress. Since back in the 1990s, it seemed so urgent that, you know, these financial problems should be fixed and they should be fixed soon. And 25 years later, Congress hadn't done a single thing. And so I got interested in in what went wrong. Why why did Congress, you know, uh, drop the ball on this? And um and sort of what could be done. Uh, so at first, I, I wrote back in about four or five years ago, I just wrote a short paper on it. Uh, and to the best of my knowledge, nobody read it. Uh, and then I realized one of the reasons nobody read it is it really didn't have anything new. It was sort of you know speculative, but it didn't have any answers. And so then I decided to write a book and go out and sort of figure out what the options were, why Congress was uh, was so reluctant to jump in, and what the prospects were for uh, going forward. I know you don't want to give away too much of the book, but I just have to ask, I mean, we're in 2022. You were writing about this in the 90s. Can you just give us a little nugget as to why we're now just paying attention to this after all that time? But we're not. Oh, we're not. <laughs> we're not. That's the problem. We're why not. haven't we been? Why haven't <laughs> That's the we problem. Been? The easiest answer to that is there are no immediate consequences for anybody, the fact. So Social Security's finances are not in good long-term shape, but there are 65 million beneficiaries right now. And each one of them, including me, I became a Social Security beneficiary two years ago. Um, We all get our Social Security checks on time, and we will for the next 11 or 12 years. 
And then suddenly in 11 or 12 years, uh, the trust fund will run dry and all of a sudden our checks will be cut by one-fifth, you know, 20%, 21%, 22%. And so right now it's not hurting anybody. And when there are lots of other things going on that seem more urgent, people say put it off. And legislators say put it off. Nobody is much paying attention to Social Security now, which is part of the reason to write a book. It's not necessarily a good way to sell a book. But in fact, I'm hoping that the book will try to both understanding and pressure toward politicians doing something on this. I mean, you're, you say that Social Security is heading towards insolvency what does that mean exactly? Is is it really going to go broke? I mean, the statistics you just said, shared are very nerve-wracking. People need to understand a little bit about how Social Security is funded. First of all, it's a self-funding program. It doesn't get any money from general taxes, and by law, it can't. So it raises its own revenue through the payroll tax. We all pay 6 point, or back when I worked, uh, we all paid 6.2% of our uh, of our base salary up to what's called the Social Security wage base, and our employers uh, match that with their 6.2%. And so that's the basic funding source for Social Security, and that's sent to Washington and put in a trust fund. But in truth, it, uh, it, it's spent out immediately. And before 1983, that's exactly how it operated. There was just this very tiny trust fund that was sort of a rainy day fund. You know, if we had a recession and people were unemployed and there weren't quite as many taxes coming in, that Social Security would still limp through it and get the Social Security checks out. But starting in 1983, that was the last solvency crisis, they changed the tax formula and the benefit formula in a way that gradually built up a trust fund. And the trust fund grew to almost $3 trillion. But right now, Social Security is devouring its trust fund. As of last year, uh, Social Security taxes, the payroll taxes, are not large enough to pay all benefits. So every month, Social Security dips a little bit more into its trust fund. And the reason it's doing that is the baby boom generation. That's my uh, generation. We're all retiring and we're a huge generation. And the uh, generation right behind us is not as big. So Social Security uh, is not getting tax revenue it needs to pay benefits. So it's paying down, devouring really, its trust fund. And the projections are, and these projections are usually quite accurate because they're uh, they're based on on things like uh, mostly on demographics, on on age. They know who's going to retire, not by name, but they know roughly how many million people will retire each year, and how many will die, and how how many will become workers, and all. By 2034, roughly speaking, it could be a year before, it could be a year after, the trust fund will be empty, and at that point, by law. Social Security will only have enough revenue to pay about 78 or 79% of benefits. So that's what we call the solvency crisis. It's happened before. It happened in 1977, happened in 1983. Each time Congress came together and fixed it. But right now, the big difference is we had 40 years to prepare for this. 1994 was when the actuaries first pointed out the problem. 2034 is when it hits the fan. Those are so far about 30 lost years or 28 lost years. And the question is, will we ignore it for the next 12 or will we will we act sooner? Well, given everything going on in the United States and the world, I'm inclined to 
predict they might ignore this for a little while longer, which is concerning. You get into the book some options for fixing this problem. Can you talk a little bit about those today? Sure, be happy to. So since we've had two solvency crises in the past, 1977 and 1983, let's just ask quickly, how did Congress fix it each of those times? In 1977, it simply raised taxes. It simply raised the payroll tax and it raised the maximum taxable wage base. Now, the maximum taxable wage base is how much of your compensation is taxable, uh, and it's currently $147,000. So if you make less than that, you pay 6.2% of whatever you earn. Uh, If you make more than that, you pay 6.2% on that $147,000. So in 1977, they raised the tax rate by about 25%, and they raised the maximum taxable wage base by 68%. And those two things were thought to make Social Security solvent, and so they did nothing to cut benefits. In 1983, just six years later, when the solvency crisis returned, largely because of high inflation, it made the opposite kind of choices. It did not raise taxes very much at all. It didn't raise either the tax rate or the maximum taxable wage base. It accelerated some tax uh, increases that were already approved in 1977. So they just came in a little earlier. Mostly it cut benefits. And it mostly cut benefits by raising the retirement age. They raised the retirement age from 65 to 67. But they did that. They phased it in over four decades. So people sort of gradually got used to the idea and and the phasing in is just finishing now. So it took basically from 1983 to 2022 to raise the, the retirement age by, by just two years. But that contributes a lot to solvency because it effectively reduces benefits. You collect benefits for two years less uh, and you also work for two years long longer. So that's that's more revenue. So that's what they did uh, back in 77 and 83. And you can do all of those kinds of things today. If you literally wanted to simply quote, save Social Security, fix Social Security, make it solvent for the next 75 years, you could simply raise the tax rate from currently 6.2% to 8.1%. That's a pretty big tax rise, 62 to 8.1%. It's 1.9%. And of course, Workers would pay it and their employers would pay it. But according to the current actuarial projections, that would fix the problem until 2095, uh, something like that. So that gives you a sense of, yes, it's fixable, but it also gives you a sense that, oh, that's pretty painful, uh, but, but that would do it. Another way to do it is to raise the maximum taxable wage base, the 147000 And you could raise it a little bit. You could raise it a lot. If you completely eliminated it, um, said simply everybody will pay 6.2% on all of their wages and salaries, uh, you'd eliminate three quarters of the long-term actuarial deficit. Uh, so you'd still have a deficit, but you'd take care of three quarters of it like that. Another way to do it is to simply raise the retirement age. So if you raise it from 65 to 67, you can raise it from 67 to 68. And if you do that, that would close one-seventh of the long-term actuarial deficit. There are also ways you could play with the way benefits are adjusted for inflation. Uh, They're 
currently adjusted with what's called the consumer price index. Uh, and a lot of economists think that sort of overstates inflation a little bit. They have now an alternative index called the chain price index, and basically takes which takes into account the fact that if chicken prices go up, some people will switch to turkey or vice versa. And that's not a major change of living standards and shouldn't be part of the consumer price index, which it is. Um, so if you simply switched your price index to the chain price index, that would uh, solve one fifth of the long term deficit. So if you think about Congress as a place that reaches compromises, you know, it'll probably pull a little bit from all of these kinds of, but it's basically you need to find ways to either increase revenue or decrease benefits. I'm glad you said um, the thing about compromise because I was about to ask you which of those are most feasible because I can imagine that kind of increase is, is a shock to people's paychecks. And then also, you know, working till 68, that's, that's a long time in the workforce. And let's talk a little bit too about polarization because it seems like representatives are so polarized on this issue of fixing Social Security. Why is that the case? Oh, they're polarized on everything. They're yeah, absolutely true. polarized on everything. In general, Congress is polarized on health care, climate change, the environment, taxing and spending. It's really hard to come up with a major issue that they're not polarized on. So, so that's, the, uh, that's the biggie. Now, it turns out legislators are not polarized on whether it should be saved. There's nobody out there that I know of in Congress that's saying, oh, yes, I think a 21% benefit cut in 2034 is good. It'll, it'll put hair on their chest, so to speak. It'll, it's, it's a good, vigorous thing that Americans should do and be prepared for. Nobody's saying that in Congress, and they certainly won't be saying it in 2034 if it's about to happen. Their principal disagreement is over how to fix it. Republicans in general have been talking in favor of either strategic benefit cuts, such as raising the retirement age, not immediately, but in the long term, or doing something like privatizing Social Security. But they're sort of really hemmed in by the fact that most of them have signed what's called the Norquist Pledge, promising never to raise taxes. Well, if you go back to the options I laid out a few minutes ago, it's very hard to come up with a Social Security plan to sort of gradually reduce benefits uh, that's somehow going to bring it in balance in just 12 years. If they'd done that in 1994, 1997, you could have done it. You could have gradually reduced benefits, raised retirement age, monkey with the cost of living index. There are all sorts of ways to do it. Those, those things need decades to, to phase in gradually, and it's very difficult to, to do it right now. So some increase in taxes is almost certainly going to be needed, but Republicans are dug in, well, no, we've pledged we'll never raise taxes. That's polarization for them. Uh, and as a consequence, both Democratic and Republican legislators were introducing lots of plans to, uh, to fix Social Security. Democrats still are. There are a lot of Democratic plans on the table because the Democrats don't seem shy about raising taxes for Social Security. The last Republican plan that was introduced was in 2016. Nobody has introduced one since, and it would have made Social Security solvent over a 75-year period, 
but it would do it by really pretty major benefit cuts, phased in gradually, not like the 2034 cuts, but as a consequence, not a single other Republican legislator co-sponsored the bill. Why are they no longer uh, introducing bills? The answer is they won't raise taxes and it's sort of too late to cut benefits gradually. The runway is too short, if you if if you will, just 12 years, uh, that they're, they're sort of backed into a corner and they don't have an easy way out. So that's the nature of the polarization. On Social Security, it's not over whether it should be fixed. It's over whether we should raise taxes Democrats seem willing and Republicans are scared. Question on voters. Do you think they're as polarized as legislators? So that's a that's that's a it's a good question. First of all, we know in general when policymakers, elites, legislators, opinion uh, leaders are polarized by party, that gets transferred somehow to the way citizens think. It used to be, for example, on climate change, there was much polarization either in Washington or in public opinion polls. But as legislators started to get more polarized on climate change, uh, and therefore the messages that they were sending out were more polarized, then citizens followed. And so now uh, Democratic and Republican voters are very polarized on health care, um, on the environment, on climate change, on the same things that uh, legislators are. Social Security is the big exception. And that actually plays quite a large role in the book, trying to tease out why polarization has not happened on Social Security. And when I say there's no real polarization, it's not just no polarization. Democrats and Republicans love Social Security. The young and the old love Social Security. The poor and the affluent love Social Security, workers and retirees. Everybody uh, seems to, to like or at least respect Social Security. And that's not true about most government programs. So how is it that Social Security has, has escaped that polarization? Well, one reason is it's not been on the congressional agenda. And so there's nothing to sort of prime uh, citizens to think in a polarized way. But I think there's there's a deeper reason, and and that's that Social Security is is something that citizens know intimately. They throughout their lifetime. I mean, I think most of us, our first experience with Social Security is we see our grandparents collecting Social Security. You know, we're curious where how do they support themselves? Well, they get Social Security once a month. Oh, what's that? Um, and then when you get your first uh, job. Uh, you know, at age 16 or something, and you find out there's this FICA tax that's taken out, 6.2. What's that before? Oh, well, workers pay for Social Security. And, and you know, throughout your lifetime, and, and then you watch your parents begin to plan for retirement, and they, they're worried about Social Security. And then later on, you begin to plan for retirement, and before long, you are. So it's, it's sort of families moving through the Social Security system in which there are some age groups paying in, some age groups groups uh, taking out and some age groups just learning about it and all. So that, I think, is different from most other, you know, most most people are not collecting welfare. Most people are not uh, on Medicaid. And also those kinds of things can get in silo. People can think about it as us versus them. But in Social Security, it's more likely that people think about we. So 
right now, Social Security is not polarized. And, and that's a good thing. That That's the kind of thing that gives you hope. Yeah, I, re- I recall early on in life, my grandparents who were farmers in Western Pennsylvania saying, we're on a fixed income and not really knowing what that meant, but then re- later realizing, okay, yeah, they were drawing on that social security for their main source of income at that sure. time. So that's a great that's a great overview. And it, it does give me a bit of hope in this conversation. Do you think Congress is going to fix social security soon? Or do you think they're going to delay until 2034? And if they delay, what are the costs? Legislators are human beings. We have to forget that. Good reminder. We sometimes forget that, but they are. And human beings are procrastinators. I used to teach. A lot of students put off writing the papers till the day before and, and, and pulled the, the classic all-nighters to get their paper in, even though they knew the paper deadline three months in advance. So uh, human beings are procrastinators, and, uh, and that's it. Second, Every possible reform they could pass will impose costs on someone. It's going to impose costs on workers and employers if you raise taxes. It's going to impose costs on current beneficiaries if you uh, slightly lower the cost of living index that's used. It's going to impose costs on future retirees if you raise the, the retirement age. Legislators are very cautious about imposing costs on their constituents, especially costs that can be directly traceable back to their own votes. You can't reform Social Security without a majority of, uh, of representatives and a supermajority of senators voting in favor. Uh, and once they do, all of these future costs that they impose on people, whether they're tax increases or uh, benefit cuts, are directly traceable to legislators' votes. And so they're cautious and they're very cautious not to essentially give a good campaign issue to their future opponents. Yes, they can claim that they save Social Security, but they will also have to admit that, yes, they've imposed costs on workers, employers, current beneficiaries, future beneficiaries. And third, of course, they're polarized. We've already talked about how polarized they are, but that makes it that much harder to come together. Uh, The past two solvency crises I talked about, 1977 and 1983, there was no large trust fund. So they had to fix Social Security immediately in 1977. Immediately in six months, the money was running out. In 1983, in six months, the money was running out. Each time they waited to the last, very last moment. This time, the trust fund, they built up over essentially 30 years of of, uh, uh, up to $3 trillion will fund things for the next 12 years. It'll essentially... Uh, give them a free ride for 12 years. So if you want to convince legislators to reform Social Security now, to fix Social Security now, you need to put pressure on them and make it costly for them to delay. So uh, citizens can, through their votes, their campaign contributions and their letter writing and and, and their voice, place a lot of pressure on, on legislators. Second, it's sort of shocking how little journalists cover Social Security, uh, or at least policymaking on Social Security. As part of the book, I think I told you a while ago that the the ranking Republican 
on the Social Security uh, uh, subcommittee back in 2016 drafted the last Social Security, uh, last Republican Social Security bill. There's, of course, a current Republican who is, is there. And, and I wondered, had journalists ever covered the fact that uh, uh, he hasn't introduced a bill? And the answer is no. Why aren't journalists covering that? Uh, well, journalists like to cover action, and they're not very good at covering inaction. But I think you could make inaction into a pretty good story, too. So the, the idea right now is the next thing you have to do is to get journalists to introduce or to get legislators to introduce bills. Democrats are. They're sponsoring them and co-sponsoring them. Republicans aren't. Uh, so if you lean on Republicans a little, they may they, they may start to do so. Uh, but that's how you get action uh, in the next few years rather than waiting another dozen years. Lastly, I have no doubt that if we wait a dozen years uh, that Congress will eventually fix the program. But the fixes will be much more painful if you do them then than if you did them 40 years ago or 30 years ago or 20 years before or 10 years before, in other words, right now. I, I appreciate those direct call to actions, both both on citizens, journalists. This has been a great conversation, Doug. I think this is a good place to wrap up. Is there anything else you want to add before we close out? No, it's it's been it's been really fun talking about this, and uh, and hopefully it inspires some people to read the book and become active themselves. Absolutely. I'm both nervous and hopeful. So we'll see what's ahead. Fixing Social Security, the Politics of Reform in a Polarized Age is available now through Princeton University of Press and wherever else you find books. I want to thank you again, Doug, for joining us. We want to thank our listeners for tuning into EndNotes, currently available on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. Take care, everybody. You've been listening to EndNotes, a podcast produced by the Princeton School of Public and International Affairs. The views you just heard do not reflect Princeton University or the School of Public and International Affairs.